If you'll notice with me that that text is drawn from Psalm 72, which would have been many centuries before our Lord Jesus Christ, and hence all the good reason why the future tense, will, is appropriate in that context. But know this day that our Lord Jesus Christ, His kingdom is reigning, it is ruling in the present tense, and certainly it will have its final conclusion. But you should not be looking forward to a future event where his king begins, for that has already happened and we live in the light of its truth today and can be all the more joyful and and exuberant in what great things God is doing. You should not be discouraged. You should not be discouraged. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we now enter into the word that you have before us in this 23rd chapter of Matthew Grant your spirit now, even as we read the text, to speak to us and to encourage us and admonish us as your disciples were being directly spoken to by our Lord in the context of many others. May we, as your disciples this day, hear the voice of Christ speaking to us about these matters as well. And so we ask your spirit to pour out upon us this time together as we read, as we study, as the word is preached, as it is listened, we pray all this would be worship and that would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are with me in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, if not, that is where I'll be preaching from this morning as we continue our time together. I'll be, begin going back to verse 1 be, and read through verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say, and they do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do are to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to it as we now hear it. You may be seated. There was a time when we first moved here a number of years ago that we were beginning to build our house and we had a lot of interactivity with the Amish community down the road in terms of contractors and building supplies and And as I was interacting with one of the Amish men from the Plain Folk community, uh, who was on site and working with me with some of his boys and some of which were, were young. Um, they asked me about my son calling, referring to me as dad. This fellow had several boys himself, varying in ages, and his boys, including his very youngest, who was fairly young at the time, uh, all called me by my first name, Marion. And to our ears, that sounded perhaps maybe disrespectful, and of course we didn't say anything, but the Father made a point about this, using this particular passage, that we should not refer to anybody by honorific titles, such as Mr. or Mrs., or Father or Mother or Dad. And well, the main point of this passage this morning goes much deeper than that external factor, and that's what I'm hoping that we can consider today. This whole chapter is dealing with hypocrisy. 
In fact, the whole chapter is themes and variations on that very issue. And especially aimed at the religious leaders of the day, but it certainly incorporates all of the Jewish community in the hearing that day. And we'll find that this goes right into chapter 24 and 25, that Olivet Discourse, and refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment of God upon His people, the Jews, for rejecting His Son Jesus as their promised Messiah. Well, Jesus is in the context now where He is about to go to the cross shortly. He had already made His triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And here He's addressing now in the the strongest of terms and probably one of the sternest chapters in the Scriptures as he then points out hypocrisy. Now, as we considered last time when we met together, there's a difference between hypocrisy and inconsistency. We're all guilty with inconsistencies. We all struggle with those things. But hypocrisy goes deeper because there is a dishonesty in hypocrisy. It's a dishonest pretense. It's playing the part for the sake of reputation or esteem or for being honored. The nature of the unregenerate man, a man who does not have Christ in his life, the nature of that man, in which we all at one time were, is inherently self-centered. It's self-focused. It is self-occupied and preoccupied. It is self-advancing and self-promoting. And there is no exception to this, that everything that an unbeliever, an unregenerate man does in life, even when he or she helps another person, has a dimension of self about it. In contrast to that, a regenerate man in whom the Spirit of God has given a new birth, who is a new creation in Christ has God at the center of his life. That is the main difference between a believer, a true believer, and an unbeliever. And while this God-centeredness in our life and in our hearts is, is not yet perfected, and there are many inconsistencies, a regenerate man fundamentally desires to please God. And when he doesn't, it bothers him. And as we consider this aspect in the nature of man, the regenerate man still carries some of that residue of the old man, the flesh, with him, and he sometimes acts like an unregenerate man. As we consider this chapter before us this morning, it's my desire, it's also my prayer that the Spirit will identify to us our weaknesses, our inconsistencies, and perhaps even our hypocrisies, so that we can take those matters to the feet of Jesus. As we go through this entire chapter, which will take us a number of weeks, and the Lord identifies areas in your life where you're falling short of His glory, where it's not squared up with the truth, Pray, Lord, remove this hypocrisy. Remove this inconsistency. Grant me grace to be more true. Remove the weakness in the character flaws of my life. Let me find great satisfaction and security in Christ. May I have a greater trust in that union that I have with Him so that He is my life. If you can go through this chapter and you feel pretty good about yourself and that really none of these things apply to you, that will be your biggest problem. I think there's things here for us all. You might remember up to this point, even His disciples had been contending with wrong ambitions, wrong desires. And who would be first? And James and John's mother would then go to bat for her sons, and, 
And even as they came into Jerusalem, and they were even in the upper room right before his betrayal, and death, they were still arguing about these matters. They had some ambitions that were misguided, that had the wrong center about them. And here in this passage, he then turns to his disciples, and it says there in verse 12, and we're actually, I'm sorry, in verse 5, that's our focus, verses 5 through 12. But all their works they do are to be seen of men. And what he's doing here is he's talking, first of all, in verse 1, to the multitudes and his disciples, but he's talking about the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now remember the scene. Put the scene in your mind. He had already come into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. He went straight to the temple, and he cleansed the temple by driving out the money changers. Even the children came up to him in the courtyard of the temple, and then they were uh, praising him as the son of David. And, and then the, the leaders were then saying, silence these children, and he would not. He received their praise. And then they questioned his authority. By what authority do you do these things? Now, here they are still in the courtyard of the temple. There's quite a crowd around Jesus, but immediately his own disciples and then the crowd, among which are scribes and Pharisees. So he's got quite an audience of a mixed variety, if you will. And he begins to first speak in verses 1 through 12 to the disciples and the multitudes, but about the scribes and the Pharisees who were in their presence. After chapter 12, through the remaining of the chapter, he is, his audience then turns to specifically the scribes and the Pharisees, where he breathes eight woes directly face-to-face to them, and probably the most scathing portion of the Scriptures that we hear. He's not holding any punches. And so here, in this mixed multitude, he is directing, first of all, some teaching to the disciples who had been vying for position, who had had some ambitions, and he's beginning to, he wants to teach them and the multitudes not to be like them. But, but he's in their presence. And in the first 12 verses, what Jesus does is he exposes two things. In verses 1 through 4, he exposes... The scribes and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, their demands upon the people. They had demands upon the people. And he's warning the leaders. See, the disciples would soon be leaders. But he's warning these leaders for their lack of consideration for the problems that their teaching is generating in the ordinary people. The way that the scribes and the Pharisees taught, it was creating tensions and burdens that they could not bear. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were not even willing to help them bear those burdens. So verses 1 through 4, he exposes the demands that they put upon the people. But verses 5 through 12, then, he exposes their desires from the people. Demands upon the people, and now our passage desires from the people. Their concern was primarily with appearances and their reputation. Appearances and reputation. Does that concern you today? As we consider the passage before us, I hope we can get at the heart of the matter of what Jesus is really addressing and hear how these things might relate to us in our own spirit this morning and where Christ can fill every one of those needs. The problem Jesus is exposing in this passage in the Pharisees and the scribes is that their religious practices were designed to win the approval of people rather than the approval of God. That was their driving force. They sought human attention for their piety and not genuine piety itself. 
There's a spiritual pride. A religious realm of which they wanted other people to think highly about them. And that became more important than really what God thought about them. Now verse 5 tells us here, but all their works they do to be seen of by men. That's the heart of the issue here. It is their motive. Their motive. Their motive was to be seen of by men. Now a motive is a a very deep-seated, deep-down thing that is the reason for why we do what we do. Why do we do what we do? And that's where motive is going to come in. It is related to our desires, and our motive is related to even our loves. So the question is, what is your desires? What is your love? And this is what Jesus is exposing in these religious leaders. Deep down inside of them, where only Jesus could really discern, He then laid it all out there. And what is it that they truly love? Verse 6 tells us, He says, For they love. And he goes on to describe what they love. So motive, desire, and love. What are these in your heart of hearts? See, unregenerate leaders like these were had a love of self at their center. That's what governed them. That's what drove them to do what they do. That's how they thought. That's how they they, they lived life. It was about themselves. And because they're a person themselves of fallen humanity was at the center, they were concerned with how other people thought about them. And those concerns about how they perceived other people thought about them is what then motivated them to have a good appearance to others so that they would feel worthy. And their worth in life came from their sense of other people's opinion about them. Their worth in life came from their sense of other people's opinions about them. Verse 5 mentions two things that they did to be seen of by men. First of all, they broadened their phylacteries. Now, phylacteries are little boxes, and they have little compartments in the box. And in the little box, they put a particular passage of Scripture. And what they would do is the the Jews, some Jews, would then take these boxes and they would tie them around their foreheads. Others, they would put on their arms and they had these straps that would wrap. And there are certain names for all these things. You might see a Hasidic Jew today having the phylacteries upon him. Well, these come from specific passages of Scripture, one of which we actually read together every Lord's Day from Deuteronomy 6. And verse 8 says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall be, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. He's speaking about the Word, the law, the will of God. Also, they pull from... 11, Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, which says basically the same thing. And they're taking these very literal. And I don't think they're intended to be literal. But you know what? It, it's okay if they, if they live them out literally. There's nothing wrong with them putting the Word of God and, and putting them on their forehead and on their arms to remind them of the Word of God and In and of itself, there was nothing wrong with that. But the problem was not just them putting them there. The problem, because it was pretty customary in their culture, it was the visible token that became the means for onlookers to then ratchet up their reputation about their piety. So they broadened them. They made them larger. They they, they made them more conspicuous. Oh, he's got a large phylactery. He must have a lot of Scripture in there. 
I wonder how many scrolls he has up there. And his, look at those on his arms. Look how broad those things are. And, and that was the idea. They enlarged them so that they would be more conspicuous to everyone with the idea that other people would have a higher spiritual opinion of them. And that's where they got their worth. Jesus said, don't do that. The second way that was very prominent in their day, in their culture, which they did, is they enlarged the border of their garments. They lengthened, if you will, their tassels. Now, the borders of a Jewish garment had fringes, and they were on the corners of the garment. These are also called tassels, and these tassels were interwoven with a blue thread. Now, not only is that referenced in Scripture, it was a command for the Jews to dress this way. In the ceremonial aspects of the law, it says this from Numbers 15, verses 38 through 39. Speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a blue thread in the tassel of the corners. And you shall have the tassel... And you shall have the tassel that when you look upon it and remember the commandments of the Lord to do them, that you may not follow after the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. They were reminders. They were visible reminders that they bore in their own clothing to remind them to obey the Lord. And when they're tempted, they could look down up and they would resist the temptation. They, they were reminded of the law of God, who God was. It was very common and Jesus, Jesus wore clothing with these tassels with blue threads woven through. It would have been that, that common. That we know at least two occasions, one of which where a lady came up and was just to touch the tassel. Right? Saul, which later was the Apostle Paul, wore clothing with tassels. It was very common. And the blue thread was to be a constant reminder to those of their faithfulness to the covenant with God, their relationship with Him. It was a constant reminder of their call and their identity with Yahweh and their responsibility before God. But the problem was not the tassels. The problem was to draw attention to them in greater measure than other people and so they lengthened their tassels. They made them more prominent. Oh, look how big those phylacteries are, and look how long those tassels are. He must be something. And that opinion that they formed about themselves based upon how they wanted other people to think about them is what then made them feel important. And so no longer was their concern to look down upon their own tassels for their own personal observance. They wanted other people to look on their tassels so that they would think highly upon them. They completely skewed the purpose of the tassel. And they flipped it around to do exactly the opposite of what it was intended to do. Now this is a temptation that we all face. We all want people to think better of our spiritual lives than we actually are. There's oftentimes even a deception that comes from our own hearts on this matter, that we think of ourselves often better and more spiritually, more spiritually mature than we actually are. And the core problem is that we oftentimes find our, our worth, our, our sense of identity, if you will, in terms of how we think about people opinionating of us, how they perceive us. What do they think about me? Does that then destroy my identity and my relationship with the Lord? How they think about me. Do I need to cater to that, to, to help that a little bit more? And when that happens to you or me, our center 
our center is off. That's oftentimes what we need to think about when we think about our motives. What is at our center? What is it that causes us to think the way we do, to act the way we do? What is at our center? Is it Christ or is it anything else? Is it the opinions of others? Am I thinking too highly of myself? Romans 12.3, Paul is warning us, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Some people are very protective of their spiritual image, of their self-image, how people think about them. And they're in danger of this very thing. We're all inconsistent in this, are we not? All inconsistent. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't even want to be inconsistent. But rather than focusing your attention on Christ and His worth and finding all of your worth in life in Him, you put it on the opinions of others and you listen to those voices and oftentimes cater to it. you got to get your center right. It's a constant battle to do that. It will never happen apart from fervent praying and in the disciplines of grace. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a lengthy book on the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably the one that he's most known for. I have been fed from this book on a number of occasions over the course of my entire ministry. I've used it much in preparation for sermons. There was one particular sermon, which all of his chapters are sermons, that someone has put to writing. But there's one particular sermon and one particular two paragraphs that stood out in the entire book and has been with me since I read them. And I'm going to read those to you now. Blessed are the meek. On this particular beatitude, he says this, The meek man does not demand anything for himself. He does not take all his rights and claims. He does not make demands for his position, his privileges, his possessions, his status in life. No, he is like the man depicted in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ did not assert that right to equality with God. He deliberately did not. And that is the point to which you and I have to come. Then let me go one step further, he says. The man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He is not always watching himself in his own interest. He is not always on the defensive. We all know about this, do we not? Is it not one of the greatest curses in life since the fall, this sensitivity to self? We spend our whole lives watching ourselves, but when the A man becomes meek. He's finished with all that. He no longer worries about himself or what other people say. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing worth defending. So we are not on the defensive. All that is gone. The man who is truly meek never pities himself. He is never sorry for himself and says, you are having a hard time. Oh, how unkind these people are and they do not understand you. He never thinks how wonderful I really am if only other people would give me a chance. Self-pity. What hours and years we waste in this. But the man who has become meek is finished with all of that. To be meek, in other words, means you have finished with yourself altogether and you come to see that you have no rights or deserts at all. You come to realize that no one can harm you. The man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man think of him so well as they do and treat him as well as they do. That seems to me is the essential quality of meekness. End of quote.
See, when Christ is at your center, it matters not what other people think about your spiritual life. You know, if they thought correctly about what your spiritual life is, they would have to admit you're an unworthy sinner saved by the grace of God and the only thing that they can find good in you is Christ. But Christ is good in you if your union is in Him and there is nothing that they can say against Jesus. And that's how we need to view one another and that's how we need to think about ourselves. Next, now notice in verse 6 of the chapter, they love, they love the social sphere of life. They love the best places at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues. They, they identify in these social things with areas that would give them adulation and the praise of men. That's what drives them. That's what compels them. They want to feel honored by men. And they are in the presence right now in chapter 23 by being judged by their God in these very words. They love to sit in the best places, the seats of honor. Verse 7 says they love to be called by honorific titles. They love titles that others would call them. They seek these titles for themselves and these positions that would then gain them this reputation. Rabbi is one of those titles. They want to be called Rabbi, Rabbi. The etymology of the word rabbi really means the great one. Oh, the great one, the great one. It was an honorific title used in those days of some official reputation or status. And it was from those titles that they were soaking up some worth, self-worth, status, position, fame, reputation, The religion was centered on themselves. Everything they did was to be noticed and seen by men. And it's what motivated them in the sphere of their social dimension and social life. They thrived on others. And Jesus warns them, and he warns us, don't be like that. Don't be like that. He says in verse 8, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brothers and sisters. He levels the playing field right there. Among us here today, we're all brothers and sisters. Don't fall into the trap of seeking these titles for yourself, or the status, or the position, or whatever it may be. We're brothers and sisters. And the use of titles, that's not the main issue here, is that the main issue is that those titles can be a great snare because if you seek them, what is your motive? What is your desire in that? It's what they are desiring that becomes the issue. Sometimes titles identify someone's function in life. We actually can't get away from titles and appellatives or these stations of life to be helpful to clarify what, what, what some person does. Uh, there's the doctor, there's the nurse, there's the, the technician in the corporate world. There's different titles for different functions that they do. In government, there are uh, different titles. In the church, we even see the apostles, there's pastors and bishops and deacons. In the family, there's father and mother. Honorific titles such as father or mother are used in everyday life, and I don't believe Jesus is prohibiting their use here. We have to remember we're in a religious atmosphere where these men were thriving on things from other people, and that which would then inflate them in their self-interest and worth, and that was the use and the reason for the title. To teach children to respect and honor their parents in obedience to the fifth commandment, and we use an honorific title like Mr. or Mrs. or Mom and Dad, I think are appropriate. 
The purpose, the motive for doing so is not to to inflate father's position in the home. It's to teach our children to ultimately honor God in the way that we speak to our elderly and to our parents. It's the motive of the heart that's the issue here. That's where the driving sense is for our desires. You know, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. I am a father to you. He speaks of himself as a father to his son Timothy, spiritually speaking. But he didn't go around saying, Father Paul to son Timothy. He didn't refer to himself as Father Paul. But he was an apostle, and oftentimes he opened up his epistles, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And he would continue his salutation. He he gave his station in life, but he did not say, the apostle Paul. He said, Paul, an apostle. We often refer to him as the Apostle Paul, but he never referred to him that way. He referred to himself as Paul, an apostle. See, the issue here is motive. It would not be wrong for me to call him the Apostle Paul to his face, but if he felt that desire for such a a reason for himself to find worth in that, then he is wrong, and that's why titles are, are, are dangerous. I believe we do need to be careful in this passage as it talks about titles, particularly in in our sphere of academics and all the letters that we can have out behind our name or in the church, where is exactly the sphere of which Jesus is addressing here with the scribes and the Pharisees. And just a personal note here. Um, I've always been a little uncomfortable with ecclesiastical titles, and some of them more particularly so for this very reason. I use titles very sparingly, and I'm very mindful when I do it, and there's a very deliberateness. When I first became a pastor, I had a very spirited discussion with one of the male members in our church, and he always referred to me as Pastor Lovett. We had another man in the ministry that uh, was not really refined very much in his spiritual walk with Christ. He always referred to me as Marion. I was perfectly comfortable with that. But this fellow pulls me aside and he said, he doesn't call you pastor. Yeah, that's fine. We need to have a pastor. I said, I am your pastor. I'm his pastor even though he calls me Marion. And we had a very spirited and lively discussion over this very thing. And he felt like I should make him call me pastor. I took him right to this passage, and that became fodder for the continuing conversation. I've never sought an ecclesiastical title. And the truth of the matter is, I had more respect from the man that called me Marion than I did from the guy who called me pastor. To me, it was neither here nor there. I've had parents ask me, hey, can I, can, what do our kids call you? I say, what do you want your kids to call me? Pastor Lovett? It's okay. I'm not seeking that, but if that's the way you want to teach them respect for authority and for the position that I have, that's fine. I'm okay with that. But other people call me all kinds of names. I've lived with that for all of my life. I'm the fourth generation Marion in my family. Caleb is the fifth and James is the sixth. Marion has been in our family for a very long time. I am the only one that had got called that by the first name. You can imagine what I lived with through going up school. Remember Robin Hood? They would just shorten it to maid. Maid. Yeah. All kinds of things. 
Um, I'm perfectly fine with people calling me Marion. Elder Lovett. Mr. Lovett. Brother Lovett. Pastor Lovett. Dude, whatever. (laughs) Really, that's not the issue. I will say this. I'm I'm even more uncomfortable, though, however, if someone calls me Reverend. I've just always been uncomfortable. I don't even like to see that in writing. Some people put that on the funeral thing, and that's just kind of a protocol to identify that. I don't get my worth from a title. In fact, I don't even get my worth for how people perceive me in life. But unlike my Amish friend, I do make my kids call me dad. Not by my first name. And if we contend for titles and insist that we should be called by some honorific title, you need to check your hearts. Check your heart. Or if you're even seeking such. And this is the example of what Jesus is referring to as he's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees and what they want to be called. In fact, I stumbled across a list of titles this past week as I was looking for a particular article, and I came across something of one of, one of the branches of the Protestant churches. And here is their titles and their ecclesiastical titles and then how they should be uh, addressed as a person. Deacons should be called or referred to as the reverend deacon. The reverend deacon. And if I'm to address him, I can address him as the reverend Mr. Stauffer. And it denotes that he's a deacon. Priests uh, are usually styled as the reverend or the reverend father. The, The reverend Mr. Bradshaw would be an appropriate address in that particular branch. Archdeacons are usually styled by the vulnerable deacon. Venerable, thank you. (laughs) Venerable. What did I say, vulnerable? (laughs) That too. (laughs) The vulnerable and venerable. (laughs) Bishops are styled as the right reverend. Everyone were a right reverend? That's a bishop. When you address him... In, in everyday life, you're going to address him as his lordship. His lordship. Archbishops are styled the most reverend. Yeah, there's one above the right reverend, the most reverend. You know what you address him as? Your grace. You probably know what branch of the ecclesiastical church I'm referring to, but I think that's a good illustration of what Jesus is warning us against. You might recall at this very point in the disciples' lives, they were still competing for ambition on who would be the greatest in the kingdom, who would sit next to Jesus. They were still doing this. In fact, they were going to go into the upper room not long from now, and they were going to still have this kind of discussion. They weren't getting it. Jesus has to turn it all around and says, no, brothers and sisters, your worth and your sense of worth must come from who you truly are in Christ. In me is what Jesus was telling them. Your union with Jesus Christ provides everything that you need for life and for godliness and contentment and satisfaction and worth. concludes in verses 11 and 12, but he who is the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and who humbles himself will be exalted. If your sense of worth comes from the opinions of others, hoping that that somehow puffs you up or exalts yourself, he says, you will be humbled. And yet, if that is your position, you will always be catering toward that desire you will always find that you fall short. It will never, ever satisfy. On the one hand, you may think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, and you have a false sense of yourself. That was true of the Pharisees. You might think you're great. You deserve notice. If they only could see my achievements, what I'm really about, you you thrive on the attention of others or 
on your achievements or on your things or your skills or your talents. And you want people to think highly of you based on those things. That's where you get a sense of worth. You try to persuade people of your argument that you really are as great as you perceive yourself. That you really are smart, you're talented, you're, you're a great musician, or you're an industrious person, and, and you're good at whatever you do. Or you're just a generally good person. And if that's true of you, if that's how you think about life, you're, you generally want other people to think about that too. Or you feel like you're slighted because they don't notice you enough. If that's true of you, you're, you're probably critical. You probably judge people very quickly. You, you, there's a self-righteousness in you that cannot help but to be critical and judgmental. You easily find fault in others. Rarely find it in yourself. It's difficult for you to admit that you're wrong. You have, you're not easy to teach. You simply have too high of a view of yourself. And we all struggle with this inconsistency. Check yourself this morning and see where your sense of worth is. Is it from Christ or is it coming from other people? Or perhaps even yourself? On the other hand, you may always question how people question you. How do, how do they think about me? And always questioning yourself. And that breeds an insecurity. And that insecurity you feel comes from the self again. It's not meek. It's not poor in spirit. It's overly focused on how you perceive yourself if you measure up to other people or what other people's opinions are about you in any given context. You can never quite measure up. You cannot ever quite hit the mark. You try harder and harder or you just give up. And that's how you feel. You get down on yourself because self is where you are trying to find your worth in the context of others. Sometimes you get discouraged when people have poor opinions of you. If that's true, your center is off. Your center is off. You haven't accepted and embraced your union with Christ and who He has made you to be, who He has declared you to be, who He has gifted you to be, as unique in Himself, you are in Christ. And that is where your worth is. Paul would say, I am dead, but my life is hidden with Christ in God. It is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That's where Paul founds his worth. And when the Corinthians were judging him, he said, I don't even judge myself. It is Christ and Him crucified. That's what I want to know of you. Both of these things, thinking more highly of yourself and wanting other people to think highly of you, or questioning yourself and always wondering if people are questioning you, comes from the same root, and that is self. And know that the things that affect your motives and loves and life are going to come from that springhead. What's at the center? And those motives will compel you to do what you do. The answer to all this is Christ. Christ and Him crucified. Keep Him at the center of your life. When you stray away, get back to Christ. Whatever is worthy in you is because of Him. We are only accepted before God because we are accepted in the Beloved, His Son, Jesus. And be confident of Him. Be confident of His calling in your life. And be comfortable being His instrument to serve other people and however he would serve them. That's what he's getting at in verse 11 and 12. Serve. This is what I'm doing. This is what I've always been doing. 
And when you do that, and you deplete yourself, and you deny yourself, and you pick up your cross and you follow Jesus, you will find that He exalts you. And there is no other person, living or dead, that could ever exalt you with a greater satisfaction than when He does it. No title, no position, no accolades or applause of men can be as great as when Christ himself exalts you. So what, why do you do what you do? And what drives your motives? Is it the glory of God in everything, including your sufferings? And whatever great privilege you have to live out your day today and tomorrow and this week and next year, for the glory of God, whatever circumstances He brings your way, is that your chief motive is to glorify Him. That is my desire. That is my love. Because the Spirit of God put that there? Or is it off-center in some way that needs to be squared back up? Do you thrive on what other people think about you spiritually? Or are you afraid that they may see some chinks in your weakness and character? And that then causes you to protect that area so that other people won't see that. Don't be afraid. Christ has covered that too. The greatest freedom in life is when you have Christ at your center. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have heard exhortation from your scripture as Christ turns to us and he says, don't be like them. And we find how often and frequently we are just like them. So much inconsistency in our lives, so much tension in our regenerate souls, but yet still has the residue of this flesh that seeks to, to take over. But how thankful we are that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And Christ will triumph in our lives. We pray that you would square us up now with the plumb line of the scripture. And that Christ would be seen in our lives. He would be at the center. We would give him all of the glory. And all of our motive and love would be for his sake as we serve one another. As we do what Christ would do to his brethren to what he calls his own brothers and sisters. How condescending our great God has been in order to bring us to glory. We give you all the thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen.